Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Hello and welcome to This Spiritual Fix, Episode 7, Season 3. Today we are finishing our three-part series on the mother wound. Enjoy. This Spiritual Fix, Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game with Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm really excited about this episode. How are you? I'm good. I am too. I'm really excited because, well... It's our third in our Mother Wound series, and it's really great because the first two were recorded, what, about a month ago? I think two months and, ago. Yeah. And we've had a lot of learning since then, and I think about a week ago is like, we have to record a third one because we've I've learned so much, and then you agreed, and I'm just super excited about this episode where we're going to talk about more about the healing part yeah, right? and more about the interesting bits. And for a little behind the scenes, if you're a new listener, Christina and I usually take turns. It's kind of random of who's leading a topic. So Christina's leading the Mother Wound series. And then usually we get together every few months and record in bulk six to eight episodes because we like to be in person. But then this episode came up and we just both felt divinely guided. Like the universe was just kept nudging us, nudging us, nudging us and being like, you've got to look at more because the mother wound is everywhere and it's in so many things that I didn't even realize before and I've had just some crazy experiences since then yeah we got to do it so we're doing this one on zoom and hopefully the sound quality won't be too different and yeah I kind of feel honestly this is maybe slightly my minor narcissistic tendencies which most of us have by the way it's more like Truman Show-esque sort of thing where wait are you calling me a narcissist (laughs) No, I was just going to just explain myself. Yeah, I was kidding. kidding. <laughs> oh, because I said most people have minor narcissistic tendencies. No, yeah. no, you said, I think uh, it's, well, it doesn't matter. Because see, like, that's what a narcissist would do is they would turn it around and, okay, never mind. It's a joke. <gasps> oh, gotcha. No, no, it's that's good. I, I don't know. I, I think that they're, they're, they should add something about, like, fear of being a narcissist to the, the DSM-5. <laughs> right. Fear of having that's everything weird. in the DSM. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> That's probably something else. But the um, what I was going to say is that like it's been amazing for me because I had to I had to do so much work. No, I I like I kind of voluntarily gave myself access to the mother wound, 
right? And then she threw me into the deep end, and you guys have heard those episodes these last two weeks. And then everyone around me is going through really, like, it's not funny. Like, they're going through really deep mother wound stuff. And I'm just like, and, and I wonder if it's just the people that I'm in the awareness of. And it's now, it's like, you know, the red car and you're seeing the red car everywhere. Or if it's just like that, that there's some sort of access that I've granted to the other people in my life just by being in their proximity that's made it so that, you know, this is happening. Well, so, I, I actually I believe now that it actually, everything is the mother wound. So that, that's my theory because I'm seeing it everywhere. And like for season one was the primal wounds and we can all relate to those. And then season two was the drama triangle and we can all relate to those. And then I feel like the mother wound is the next level. Like when you get to the point that you start to see the mother wound in all things, that is when you have graduated to the next level. Right. But I think there's a, I think there's like a, con- like not a, not a paradox. What's the, what's the word? When they say the primal wounds, I'm almost convinced that the primal wounds rise from the mother wound and yeah. not the other way I'm, around. I'm like, I'm just seeing it everywhere. Yeah. So um, going into our little prelude. So again, for new listeners, we get a lot of new listeners. So I, I just want to kind of show you what we do is we always talk about a random topic for the first five, 10 minutes of the episode, which is not actually random. It's channeled. And we usually pick the topic because somehow later in the episode, it will correspond. So I wanted to talk about a Disney movie I just saw, which is called Encanto. And Christina hasn't seen it, but it ties in so well to the mother wound. Tell me all about it. All right. Well, I'm I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. So Encanto is a Disney movie that just came out. And if you ever watch Disney movies, they're usually a love story which is about special love, special relationships, finding the one that will complete you. And more recently, they've kind of changed things up. So Moana was more about becoming a leader and trusting her intuition. In fact, I saw that movie for the first time when I was working on The Primal Wounds because in essence, it's about the monster we become when we are not complete and and contained within our own heart. So that was a side note, very fitting. And this one is all about sibling dynamics. You have an older sibling, the middle child, and then the youngest child. And quintessentially, they follow in, what is that theory called? When it's, what, is there a theory? Sibling, sibling order? I'm sure, there, I'm sure there probably is a sibling order. I don't know I if think, there is one psycho- I don't know. in psychology, but I do know that oh, there probably, most people have an idea. Yeah, of it, right? there's like sibling order theory or something, which is basically that the older child, and, and it has been shown that they do actually have higher IQ on average, is the oldest sibling, but they also have the most pressure to succeed. They have a lot of pressure to be per- perfect, and they are the most stressed out of the, th- of the siblings usually. Then the middle child is the one trying to keep things together and also kind of step away from the shadow of the older sibling so that they are usually in some way very different than the older sibling. And they have to usually like do things to get attention because they're often neglected being in the middle. And then the youngest child is typically the black sheep of the family or the jokester. They're usually the most relaxed. Okay, so this movie is all about that. And it's very, very interesting because for a little background, my mother died when I was 11 and she was sick for many years before that. And I haven't dreamt of her. So usually when someone dies, you dream of them a lot in the beginning of the grief period. But like, I haven't dreamt about my mother for uh, 20 years. And it wasn't until I saw Encanto that I actually ended up dreaming about my mother because the movie is all about family dynamics and relationships with the sibling. In this movie, there is a song called Surface Pressure. And the middle child is singing about how 
she says, give it to your sister. Your sister's older. Give her all the things that we can't shoulder. And the whole song is about the older sibling having to take on and absorb the pressures for the sibling that falls below them. So in my dream, my mother and my father were having a vow renewal and my mother was wearing blonde hair extensions, which is really ironic because she was known, not famous, but like her trademark quality when she was alive was her deep auburn hair. So that was very odd. And then in the dream, everyone was their age around the time my mother died, but my sister in the dream was an adult, pretending to be an adult when she was really still a child. So it really tied into the Encanto movie, giving me access to recognizing the pressure that the older sibling, and I think that's true for all families, and I'm not calling out my sister here or any, you know, but I think the older sister bears an incredible burden of pressure in any family, and then even more so when one of the family members dies. They're now forced to take on the role of mother. They are forced to become the attachment bond to the other siblings, which was what basically the dream was showing me. The dream was showing me that When a parent dies or a parent is unavailable, because in the dream, my mother was completely out of it, as if she was the night that she died, cognitively, as we would say in in healthcare, alert and oriented time zero. And my sister was the one kind of keeping it all together. And it showed me in the dream that when you lose the attachment bond to the person that you are attached to, what does the little childlike brain do? Do, 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 just goes to the nearest and closest thing. So for me, it was my older sister. And for other people, it could maybe be food or TV or another parent. I mean, I don't know what it would be, but basically Encanto kind of tied into the whole theme of the mother womb because it was showing me the pressures of sibling dynamics and also how the attachment bond can work. But anyways, do you want to Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's been my, one of my huge things I'll talk to you about a lot later in the in the episode is how one of my huge realizations was, you know, was was a very similar thing with my same siblings. So yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very important dynamic to recognize. Anna calls it an attachment bond. I call it an attachment object. But they're the same thing. They're basically this idea of of that as a child you have to find something to fill that hole, and you may not think of that person as your mother replacement, right? Like you may not act like that, but there's a lot of validation that you look for. There's a lot of pleasing that you look for there's a lot of kind of like going back again to that rhesus monkey that we talked about in the i think it was the second episode of the series where this experiment was a baby monkey was basically made to attach to a robot at first and it treated it really kindly and then the robot turned on the baby but the baby kept coming back right so the baby kept like you know the mother would would push it away and be cruel to it and yet the baby just kept coming back because it was its attachment object and you know it kind of was describing this whole phenomenon of you move your attachment object to something else especially something that is not really wanting to be the mother figure right or the father figure and you're going to find that you're going to get maybe some monster mother experiences, right? And be trying to please somebody who is never going to be wanting you or is going to be quite resentful of you. Right. And you see this word floating around a little bit on social media called parentification, which is where they parentify the older child. You'll see parentification in a lot of cultures, I think a lot in Latin America and parts of Asia where, and we definitely do it here in North America, where the oldest sibling, typically the daughter, is kind of given a little 
an unfair distribution of chores in the house. You know, the older, the oldest sister is the one kind of designated the task to change the diapers of the baby or this or that and this and that. Well, they call it parentification, but I'm recognizing more and more just how damaging that can, not damaging, but unpleasant that it, an interesting evolutionary experience it would be to have your attachment object be a sibling who they themselves are a child. They themselves don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to nurture, protect, or guide necessarily. Maybe they can guide, but and they don't, they don't really want it. They don't really ask for it. And they're yeah. kind of forced into that role. And then there's a lot of resentment and bitterness. Like I know, for example, that you know, my sister didn't necessarily respond in a lot of ways that I would have liked her to as a child, but she herself was a child. Like what, that's not fair to her that she had the burden to be the one to guide me and nurture me through that. So she, of course, didn't give me the quote unquote experience I deserved, but she herself was a child and what an incredible burden for her to have to be in that role. And it's just, it's very yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, we're, when we talk about guidance, so so to give you guys a preview and kind of transition into what we're going to be talking about this episode, the first part is, you know, we talk about protection, nurturance, and guidance. And I really want to go into more detail about what that means and kind of what are the indicators that you may be, you may have lacked in this area based on kind of what you're presenting now, right? Like right. in terms of your behavior. And one of the things we talk about in guidance is this whole idea that you know, that mothers shouldn't be best friends because they actually have a much bigger role than that, right? Like that-, that Oh, the it's parent actually, who wants to be best friends with their kid? Yeah, the parent who wants to be best kids is actually taking a demotion, so to speak, ah. right? Like they're kind of demoting themselves from a very important role of guidance. And so you can kind of see it both ways in which, you know, you're asking, you're giving the, the sister or other figure, you know, siblings a promotion that, that they don't want. Or you can go the other way and the mother can give themselves a demotion. In either way, you're not fulfilling the guidance requirement of having secure right. attachment. And going back to the whole drama triangle, it's a fine line too, I think, of being a parent between being a coach and being controlling. You know, so if you're looking at your role as a mother in terms of guide, like are you being a coach to your child or are you controlling them? Because I see a lot of parents very controlling, overbearing with their kids in the guise of guidance. Where you know, and I think it's a good balance of coaching your child versus yeah controlling the child, right? And that and that also feeds into protection, which we'll talk about here in a okay. second. Okay, cool, cool. And then in the second half of the episode, we are going to be talking about more. Like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about attachment objects, and as well as Anna's going to be getting into kind of what. Why don't you tell them what we're going to be getting in the second half when you're talking about? So when you start talking about attachment bonds, I really want to talk to you about the work I've been doing, which is recognizing that. We know we attach to the mother and then the mother either gets replaced by a sibling or a lover when we grow up. You know, we, we kind of, our attachment object becomes our husband or our wife or our girlfriend, whatever. But then beyond that, I want to talk about closing the circle and that the attachment object actually becomes yourself or God. If you're comfortable with the word God, you're going to close that circle with God versus for, you can say self if you're an atheist. Essentially, I'm going to be going into A Course in Miracles explanation of special love versus holy love and how special love is very egoic, very Hollywood, very romanticized love where you have love for one special person and that actually is feeding the ego, a feeding attachment and feeding your reincarnation cycles in this lifetime. Whereas holy love is recognizing, as Ram Dass says, I don't want to be the lover, I want to be love. 
So it's about de-identification with yourself as the lover and the object of the love and instead moving into a higher state of being love, emanating love and loving everyone. I'm so excited. I love, I love, I love, I am the lover of special love talk. It's so so fascinating because it's a really, really hard concept. Right. I remember when I heard it the first time I was like, that's the only thing, right? But that was also when I first heard it, I was like in a very early stage. Yeah, when they say don't have special love. Yeah, you're like, how do I not have special love? It's it's a hard thing to grasp, but... Yeah. Ultimately, all the masters say the same thing, to, to be love, to move in love, and not have one object of your love. Yeah. So yeah. basically what we're doing is we're trying to take modern psychology, and then after explaining all that, going next level and tying into what you know, Vedanta, A Course in Miracles, and maybe even the Bible is saying about love. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. So let's get into it. As a reminder, and this is something that we covered more in the first episode of the Mother Wound series, is I'm taking this information from a book called Mother Hunger by Kelly McDaniel. The subtitle is which uh, How Adult Daughters Can Understand and Heal from Lost Nurturance, Protections, and Guidance. So one of the things I wanted to say about this quickly is that it does obviously specify adult daughters. We do have people who don't necessarily identify as daughter who are listening. And what I found is that from listening to this book, that especially nurturance and protection is universal. Like that is completely, that is, it's just universal. It doesn't have to necessarily be someone who identifies as a daughter. And then guidance obviously comes much more into that whole, this is, this is, I am a daughter and I am learning how to express myself as a daughter. And if you are non-binary or transgender or anything along those lines, or if you're a man and you're listening to this, you know, definitely take in the nurturance and protection thing. But you may also find that some of the guidance part is actually very relevant as well, even if it is kind of more specifically geared towards daughters. So first, let's get into nurturance. So when you think of nurturance, Anna, what do you think of? I was actually thinking about that today. How am I nurture? How do I nurture? And I think for me, it's like so textbook, it's physical touch and food. (laughs) I don't that's know. It. Oh, is that what it is? No, that's totally oh, it. Oh, <laughs> that's funny because I was like, how A plus. Do, A plus. Oh, my God. Because I was looking at my behaviors. I'm like, how do I nurture? How do I nurture? I was like, well, I think when I cuddle my kids, that's nurturing. I kiss them. And I love to make them food. That's it. That's that's Those are your requirements. Nurturance that's, has two requirements. Oh, cause, great. Because I was like, I, I was thinking, I was actually like, it's because I didn't have, it's because my mother died that I don't know how to be a proper mother. I only know how to hug and cook. <laughs> But obviously, I, did, I know more. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? That's, that's the interesting thing, right? So that's what we talk about. When we talked about this in the first episode is about how during your certain life, like during your early formative years, you need certain things more than you need others. When you're first born, you need physical touch and food. Obviously, you need protection, which is in the form of shelter. But like, you know, when we just talk solely about nurturance, the primary caregiver or the mother in this case that you know is basically needs to provide physical touch and food and so the fascinating thing about this is that you know let's start with touch oh can I advocate something really quick yeah can I just say something really quick so I just wanted to throw in that anyone in here who has a baby or recently has a baby and is told that if they carry their baby they're gonna spoil it and like it's not good to hold the baby too much because you hear that shit all the time 
you're just nurturing them. Like what can be wrong with nurturing a child and an emotional need is still a need. So if they want to be held, fucking hold them. That's my just two cents. Okay, let's keep right. going. Right. I mean, I think that's true, but I think we also have to cast that with the fact that we've created a monster of culture in which women have to be the only one who ever carries their kid. You know what I mean? Like, cause they're, they're growing up and they're, gro- they're right. growing up as parents in isolation. Yeah. Parents and I, oh, that's true. We are in a, a pandemic. Okay. So do what you can then. Never mind. No, I'm just talking <laughs> about the isolation of Western culture. I'm not even talking oh, about the pandemic, yeah, which you're just right. exacerbated it. Right? right. We don't live with our aunts and, and, and fa- extended cousins and all that. Exactly. But exactly. But, but the, I agree. I agree in terms of holding a baby. It's can, easier. can hold mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the idea of, remember last, okay, so in the first episode, I talk about sensi- sensitivity, right? Because I was still trying to understand all of this, but it's still a very good point. It's like, if you're the type of person who is very sensitive to touch or doesn't feel it at all when somebody touches you, like you kind of have this, you know, both a lack of sensitivity in emotional fields, but also specifically in touch, this can be an indication that there was touch, there was a complete lack of touch in your life. The also, you know, when we get into the later things, if this touch moves into inappropriate touch, then obviously that's a protection issue, right? But purely with nurturance, when you're in those very, very, very early stages, like the more touch that you have, obviously appropriate touch that you have, the better. So with touch, there is the idea that when you are between the ages of, you know, zero and two, especially zero and one, and in those newborn stages, the, the need for touch is extremely necessary, what you could find now is that if that did not happen to you for whatever reason, and it could be numerous different reasons, maybe you were a premature baby and you were in an incubator, maybe you were, you know, in an experience in which you weren't able to be with a primary caregiver who was able to hold you my, all the my, time. My PT brain goes to osteogenesis imperfecta, or like your bones break. I'm, I mean, that's just not gonna, that's yeah, very that's rare. Totally yeah. your PT brain, <laughs> right? But what you may find is that you have an aversion to touch at this point in your life, right? So it can come off as two different things. There basically as as with all things, we can go to either side of the spectrum with touch. One is we avoid touch, we don't want people to touch us at all, or we have an addiction to too much touch and we make it unconditional even though it's completely inappropriate, right? So one of the things that that Kelly McDaniel talks about in her book is about this idea of if you've had this avoidance of touch or if you have this addiction to unconditional touch, this may be an indication that you did not have the early nurturance that you needed in order to have a healthy level of touch. And so one of the most basic things that you can do to heal this is to start touching yourself. And I'm not talking about sexual because for a lot of us, especially if you have an avoidance of touch, the idea, or if you have young kids who are literally continually cut touching you all the time, it could be that touch from another person is actually not what you need well, to be able to kind of heal this. It's right? funny because there was this meme and it was a picture. It was like a Victorian picture of a woman with like a sneer on her face. And it mm-hmm. was like the look I give my husband when he wants to make love after children have been touching me all day. <laughs> and I just thought that that was like a really good example of how, you know, when you, you're in your mother of very small kids and they're literally touching you all day long. It can be sensory overload that by bedtime, you don't want anyone else to touch you because you've just been touched and grabbed and pulled and kicked all day. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. But but then also having insecure attachment to whatever extent will exacerbate the effect that your kids have on you. Like you could have that oversensitization. And I'm not saying that's the only reason. There are a lot of other reasons why people have touch, touch sensitivity. But I'm saying that this could be 
this kind of nurturance experience could be, or lack of nurturance experience could be the reason why you are avoidant of touch and you are super sensitive to it. So is there a specific... Oh, is there a specific reason why we don't like sweaty little little toes on us? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if do your children meat- do that? Do your children do that? No. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my kids will like always want to touch me to the point that they'll get their little their little sweaty little toes and like rest them on me while they're doing stuff. I feel like there must be like a misophonia for touch, right? Like I don't even know. You know, misophonia is when like is the, is when sound you're super sensitive to sound. So like that's that's me like at the dinner table when everyone's like scratching their their utensils on the plate and it makes that screechy sound and then you start to get super sensitive to it. Like I feel like there must be that for touch, but I don't well, know. Well, for what me, it is. it's just sweaty feet. Like they can hug me all day, I'm fine with it. But when they get their little sweaty little toes on me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh, and my, my daughter has this thing I'm with, like, like text. I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to brush that foot off me. Yeah, my daughter has this thing or when when we were, I was nursing her in particular, she would, she liked this, the feel of, I'm just going to say it, she liked the feel of, like, nipples. Like, it was interesting to her while she was nursing. And I, like, cut that off right away. I was like, this is the most, like, literally... I have a lot of touch aversion and I was like, this is the worst thing ever that my daughter wants to like nurse on one and then touch the other. Oh yeah, and so they kind of like, re- it's like, it's like they're in a, in a switchboard and they're just turning the knob. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I redirected her to a belly button, to my belly button. Cause I was like, cause my, I have like an innie outie and it was like, I was like, okay, this is slightly more tolerant. And then eventually I killed that, but now she does it to herself all the time, which I always thought that was really interesting because it was like a touch thing. It was like a texture thing for so her. So you deprived her of your nipples, so now she is self-soothing. This is all your fault. No, I'm just <laughs> no, but that's the whole thing. Okay, so this transitions exactly what we need to do with touch, right? Which is this idea that like even if you have an addiction to too much unconditional t- touch, which shouldn't be unconditional, right? Because it's your body and you need to have consent for it. Like inappropriate touch even can go when you have unconditional, you know, a need for unconditional touch is that you are, or indiscriminate touch is actually probably a better way of saying that. When you have a need for indiscriminate touch where like you don't care where it's coming from, even if it should not be coming from there at all, is that you, one of the main ways of doing this is to actually touch yourself, right? To basically, you know, what you can do is you can go into a, a regression, go into an alpha state that would be even deeper. And or you can, you know, go into an alpha state and basically imagine your life as an early child getting the nurturance of touch that you need. These are both techniques that are very, very helpful. But just touching yourself, like just giving yourself those soothing rubs when you need them. Right. I wonder I know if sex it, addiction yeah. comes from this. Oh, sex addiction comes from probably a number of these different things, yes. Okay. So so there's a there's a guidance aspect of sex addiction and then there's also a protection aspect of sex addiction, but definitely kind of the addiction the addiction to the actual touch and wanting it kind of no matter what because you didn't have it when you were younger. It was like just imagine think of it as like a bucket that needs to be filled at a certain time in life, right? And as you get older, the opening to the bucket closes and becomes more and more narrow right so basically like the circumference it's like a really big bucket that can easily be filled by anybody touching you when you're a baby obviously mostly appropriate or or appropriate and as you get you know and then basically imagine there's like an aperture on the front on the top that keeps closing and closing and closing and making the opening smaller so that as you get older and older and older it's harder to fill the bucket right 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 Right. or you only want specific things to fill the bucket exactly and so 
Right. So that's why it's so useful to see if you can regress because that's when the bucket was really full. Right. So you can, you can like touch yourself and you can like do all that kind of stuff and that's great. But you're also, it's kind of like pouring a bucket into like a tiny little pinhole, you know, if you're depending on how, how how far and how long you've lacked this nurturance. Mm -hmm. So as much as you can kind of go back, that will be super useful. And then the next thing is food, which literally we could talk about an entire episode on. Again, food addiction. We got that. Yeah. So food addiction, food issues. Anorexia. Anorexia, all of this is all about whatever deprivation happened. It's, it's self-deprivation of food is that there's some sort of deprivation with food that happened. There was some sort of controlling that happened. There's lack of food that happened. And what people, what basically everyone is doing is, again, when you're a baby, you just want that food more than anything and kind of anything will fill it. You're kind of indiscriminate. You may have foods you don't do and don't like, but, you know, getting the food is the most important thing because you just require so much fuel in any given day. And as you get older, what happens is that it turns into food issues, right? So it turns into issues like I'm addicted to sugar because I'm addicted to the emotional feel that sugar gives me instead of being hungry, Right. Like there's I mean, you could like I said, we could talk about this for an hour. But the basic idea is that there's a very good chance that if you are experiencing significant food issues, then this is stemming from a mother wound that is, you know, that that has is because you lost the nurturance of food for whatever reason when you were younger. Could you just if you can't yeah, pinpoint could, where it was with food, you could just say, well, I lacked nurturance. So exactly. therefore, OK. Exactly. So one of the things I'm wanting to do with my daughter, and this is just like my own story, is that, you know, when I had my daughter, I actually did an entire podcast on this called Journey to a Happy Me. But that was that was my first podcast back in the day before I knew Anna. Or not before I knew Anna, but before all that. But anyway, I had a almost postpartum psychosis sort of experience, right? Where basically I had her and then I had crazy hormonal things. But I also had my mother wound just come out like fucking a raging tiger that was going to eat me alive. And the anxiety that rid my body, like I couldn't do anything because I was just terrified I was going to die, right? Which is my experience of of, of my experience of, of my mother, right? And so I wasn't scared about my baby dying. I was scared about myself dying, right? At first it was my baby. I was anxiety. I didn't know how to take care of it. And I was, I had a home birth and there was like a whole bunch of stuff around it. But basically the the long and the short of it was the first two weeks I was a fucking mess. I literally couldn't sleep. So basically I was a mess for the first two weeks of my postpartum experience when I first had my daughter and my daughter was tongue tied. And this was part of the thing that was contributing to a really bad experience because I was trying to breastfeed her and basically imagine the worst carnage that you can ever imagine on your chest and that's what my experience was of trying to feed my daughter because she couldn't extend her tongue out past her like her her gum line and so it was basically like being bitten all the time and so I was in such a state that my midwife was concerned with me and not necessarily concerned with my daughter so for the first two weeks of life my daughter was getting insufficient food because I was trying to exclusively breastfeed her after that two weeks we figured out what was going on. She got a phrenectomy. Like, everything got healed. And I also got a whole bunch of help from all sorts of women who would give me breast milk, which was, like, the most amazing community experience ever. That was that was Bloomington, Indiana back in the day. And not that, not that long yeah, ago, seven ba- years ago. Back in the day, seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, like, I was able to exclusively breastfeed my daughter for six months because I literally probably only supplied her with, like, 70% of the milk that she drank on a regular basis. But... 
I know that those first two weeks must have done something because she didn't regain her birth weight, right? She didn't regain her birth weight until I started supplementing her with other women's breast milk. And so, like, for me, I'm like, I need to go back with my daughter if I can. Like, if she's amenable to it and if she wants to do a meditation, I want to go back with her and just be like, you're still loved, you know? Because my daughter has food issues now and there's a part of me that I'm just like, hmm, I'm just going to – I just I know that this happened in her life and I want to be like – if she's amenable and she wants to do it, I want to go back and say, like, hey, you are loved no matter what. Like, this was a crazy time and, you know. You should do that. Just do a meditation a couple a couple nights in a row. I think that would be yeah. good. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So, you know, you can do it with your kids if you know that they, they had something like that, right? All right. I have another person I know who their parent didn't feed them after six months at night right ever right and and so like that led to certain levels of food issues right which is a, a form of nurturance but also at the same time you know again I'm, I'm also couching all of this with mothering in western culture isolation which is incredibly difficult and you know people need their sleep and there's a whole bunch of different things you can say about that so there's all sorts of reasons that we can have a loss of nurturance whether it was accidental or intentional that mean that we need to do the work now to to complete that cycle so right. how would how what's the thing that we can do with um with you know feeding yourself and making it so that you feel like that i think that in this case regression because because you you could feed yourself and kind of do the things that you need to do now but you know you always have to feed yourself so it's not like touching yourself in quite the same way but you can go back and again do a regression get into an alpha state do something along those lines in which you imagine that you have what you need and you recognize that you still are loved and worthy of love even if you did not have food right Mm -hmm. So we, just to give you guys, to let you guys know, we don't leave you high and dry, right? Like, and you don't have to go find your own resources because some of the stuff, you know, you can't necessarily find it a lot of places is that we are working on a mother wound package similar to the primal wound packages that we have in our shop so that we will be able to provide you guys with ways that you can regress and heal all these different aspects of yourself. So right. that is forthcoming. It's not ready yet because it's the holiday season and everything got crazy this fall. But yeah, yeah we're good. We definitely want to make a package where you go back and you provide yourself with the nurturance, protection, and guidance that you needed as an as a infant or, or, or child. Yeah. Do you have food issues? Now, like, do you have any food issues at oh, all? I used curiosity? to. Yeah. So I used to, like, before I did, since I had my first Vipassana course, they stopped and it never happened again. But I definitely had what I would say borderline eating disorder in college to the point that I went to a psychologist and I had read the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Psychological, you know, Diagnoses. And I told him, I was like, I'm doing all this stuff and I think I have anorexia. And he's like... You you don't you don't need to come back. You don't have anorexia. Like you're just young, and you put on the freshman fifteen, and you're can you know you're just like managing your weight. And he kind of dismissed me and told me it was all in my you know that I was just overreacting and I was fine. But I definitely had what I would consider a borderline eating disorder in the sense that like no, I was never truly anorexic. I didn't fit the criteria on the DSM, but I was super weird about food. Like I wouldn't order French fries, but then I would eat the French fries off of everyone's plate. And like I would chug tons of water before my meal so that I would be too full to actually eat. And then I would like if I was craving like a brownie or a cookie, I would eat it, but then I would spit it out into the trash. Like I would like hide in my room almost like a bulimic. 
And like, as I would chew it, I would enjoy chewing it, but then I would spit it out into a bag and then hide the baggie in the trash, like deep in a trash and no one would ever find it. You know what I mean? So wow. that I wouldn't actually eat those calories. And I told the psychologist all this. I was like, I think I have anorexia. Look what I'm doing. He's like, no, you don't. You're fine. Go home. So my cure for that was a Vipassana course. So the first Vipassana course I ever sat from then on, I feel like my relationship with food got healthy. And I stopped doing that weird stuff. Yeah. And even now, though, if I am anxious, you know, I've done it maybe two times, whatever, 20 years since I did my first Vipassana course. I'd say less. I've probably done it five times in the last 10, you know, 20 years. I've done the whole eat a brownie or chew on a brownie, spit it out in the trash because I don't want the calories. Uh, But you definitely do still. When you still eat potatoes, you definitely still eat fries. (laughs) I will not eat potatoes anymore, but that's a whole other thing because actually I did this Marissa Peer hypnosis about making healthy relationships with food. And one of the things she said is you'll just naturally be disgusted by the food that isn't good for you. And yeah. I haven't had potatoes since then. I just can't can't stomach potatoes. Yeah, yeah. So and and it's funny. in any form, not just French fries. At first, I thought it was because French fries are, are like greasy and bad, but it's not all fried food I'm turned off of. It's just potato. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. That, well, what about you? Yeah. Do you have disordered eating? Yes, I definitely have food issues. It's funny that you say vipassana because I feel like it was in vipassana because in vipassana, like once you become an old student, you can't eat in the afternoon. And for me, that I would obsess with that. I would literally just be like, "This is not okay." Because for me, I had a I had a neglect of food, right? So basically, as I was growing up, I it was very well known that we were not well fed in our formative years. Maybe when my parents were together, it was okay. But as soon as we went off, as soon as my parents got divorced, when I was two, like it was very, so it was a bit later, but we were not fed. We didn't have food in the house. We didn't have food that we could get. We didn't have things along those lines, right? So that being said, I am incredibly controlling over food at this point in my life, right? So if there's food that I'm going to eat, right? Because I still have that pickiness that I used to have as a kid. And I don't know, I, I can honestly say that I would think that pickiness has something to do with this, with wanting control over your own life and like kind of wanting, you know, that kind of aspect of it as a baby. Obviously, babies don't want control over their own life. But like, you know what I'm trying to say? There's some there's something along those lines with control issues and being picky when you're eating. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, for me, I was picky and so anytime that there's food in the house that I want to eat I just want to throw in right. one thing it could be a biological physiological thing too because some people might have text you know autism or sensory right right exactly stuff. so I don't want to say exactly. that just because you're picky eater you have mother wound issues you know oh yeah yeah no no no. I'm not saying that at all okay, that's okay, what I'm yeah. saying no, I, I don't just wanted actually... anyone hearing that maybe being like oh my god it's my fault my child is a picky eater no like yeah 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 exactly there's there's a ton of reasons why it could be but for me my picky eating is about control. I know that, right? I know that yeah. it's about all of that. And so when there's a food in the house that I'm going to eat now, my husband is completely indiscriminate. Like he will literally just eat anything and he doesn't recognize that I have special food. I have special love for certain foods. And if they're in the house and he like he's the type of person who will sit down and eat an entire pint of ice cream. I'm the type of person who will literally wait till it like will eat like two bites of it over the course of five months and by the time I don't even finish it because by the time it's at the end it's got like the frosty stuff it's like frostbitten because for me having the food available that I like is what I need right like that's the thing that I need like I need I need, need to, to know, know it's there. That the food I need to know that it's there even if I never eat it right and so when somebody eats the food that I consider that I would eat 
it upsets me beyond beyond reckoning right because like for me it's just like I have so like because it harkens back to that time when I was younger and I only ate I was very picky and I only ate certain foods and those foods weren't available to me or I wasn't allowed to eat them or I couldn't you know I couldn't take care of myself because my you know my mother was often not around and my sister was having to cook and so there was only certain foods that we could eat and and I wasn't able to take care of myself in that way so yeah All right, so going into protection, protection is really, really obvious in what's called third-degree mother hunger. Third-degree mother hunger is like, it's like a burn degree, right? Not like degrees of separation. It's like first degree is not very severe and third degree is extremely severe. And in third-degree mother hunger, you know, just to kind of say a word on that, that, that's likely if you have what's called quote-unquote third-degree mother hunger, it's likely you have CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. That's something that I have to a certain degree. When it's like a very, very severe where you completely lacked nurturance, protection, and guidance in any fit, way, shape, or form. and like So it's have first complex- degree, you lose one of them, and second degree, two of them, and three, all three are gone? Yes and no. It's more about the severity of, okay. of any. You could okay. you could have like a low severe of like, you know, kind of a low severity of, of not having any of them and, I- and still have first degree mother hunger. So Isn't it funny point- that we're talking about all this while we ignore our children in the other room? <laughs> Yes, but we also have um, amazing caregivers. Uh, yeah, yeah cool, I know. Put that in. It's kind of funny, though. And it's really obvious in third-degree mother hunger what a lack of protection does. So lack of protection is – it's not just about hurt as much as it's about psychological, emotional, and mental protection that goes on, right? So whether it's protecting you from learning about something that you're not ready to learn about or protecting you from emotional neglect or protecting you from any of these other things. So as you can see, nurturance is basic, touch and food. Protection is more about what are the next level of things that we need? We need emotional security. We need to know that it's okay for us to have really big emotions and that we are not going to get in trouble for them. We're not making a mistake by having really big emotions as we're learning to emotionally regulate, right? That's a level of protection, right? Protection, I just found out this week, you can do a child setting on your kid's iPad Mm. (laughs) to protect them and safeguard them out from the internet. You know, I didn't know Mm -hmm. that. And we had a funny incident where my son, I thought that he got into some very scary videos on YouTube. It turned out they weren't, but I flipped out. And I and I set up all the security settings on his on, on my children's iPad so that you know just so you know you can do that. And I'm gonna put a link in the show notes how to set that up because I was like what what you know I didn't know that you could even do it so I did it. Yeah, well, and that's and that's the whole idea, right? Is this idea is that you're protecting them from you're protecting them. So on the on the one end of the spectrum, you're protecting them from emotional and and mental basically learning things. And having experiences in which they do not feel safe to express themselves in their developmental milestones, right? So they don't feel safe having their terrible two outbreak because, you know, you're having a problem emotionally regulating, which a lot of us do. I had that continually when I was a kid, right? So again, it's probably something I have to go and do, not when I was a kid, but when I was an early parent, which kind of feels like being a kid. But, you know, that's one of the things I'm going to go back with my parent, with my kids and be like, hey, I was unable to emotionally regulate when my kids had tantrums because it just totally brought up that same experience with me because it wasn't safe 
for me to have emotional experiences when I was a kid. You know, it, it also has to do with consent, right? So like if you feel like you were forced to do stuff, this is, there are constant control battles and, and battles for autonomy that kids have, right? And so it's a matter of like, I recently had a friend who was like, she's like, I feel like every single morning I'm having this battle with my child to get her dressed, like she just wants to stay in her pajamas and every single morning I have to deal with this like this control like, like the, you know this this battle that's going on between us and I feel like I'm losing my emotional regulation and I feel like why doesn't my she kid just is, put the kid in the tomorrow's clothes the night before Well see there's so there's all sorts of things that can happen <laughs> that's that's the point right is that like as we grow as parents and as we like get advice from other people is that we start to realize that that there are experiences in which you can avoid the control battles that are happening and and like recognize that kids can still have autonomy with certain decisions right like so you as they grow you increase their autonomy with certain decisions even if those decisions lead to things that you do not consider appropriate right so this is the other end of the spectrum there's a lack of protection and then there's too much protection mm-hmm. also goes into this category right this idea that like you're wanting to protect them from every single possible thing that's happening and you're not allowing them to experience autonomy in their own life right again this can probably lead to control issues if you're seeing them with with protection it's like the helicopter uh, parent thing it's exactly it's the helicopter parent thing it's it's basically like and there's a good example i have a great example right so and this can be a controversial thing i'll let you guys know that but with nudity in a household, there's a lot of different, oh my God, if you go onto any parent forum, which I, I just literally is like the lines and I would never recommend going into a parent forum ever, especially if you're a parent, but you know, it's, they can be helpful in some ways, but they can also be kind of very judgy and people kind of giving their opinions and their opinions only work for their situation maybe. But when you have kids, there is a big decision is like, am I going to show my kids myself naked, Right. And, and up till when and when, you know, when, exactly. and where. Yeah. Yeah. And and then also when do I stop having my kids in the same bath together because, you know, of whatever reason, like I have a boy and a girl, like when do I stop? I just had that thought last night, you know, and and all of those things are decisions that you have to make as a parent and you are going to have situations in which you have more extreme versions. And like so, for instance, we have uh, currently have a person in our family who is ill, but we are going to see, and they are not able to prop, like they are not able to cover themselves, right? And so, one of the things that we've been talking about in this situation is that for me, I see a very clear distinction between me voluntarily, like allowing my kids to see a a nude body, asexualized, like completely asexual, like there's nothing sexual about it, so that they understand kind of the process of growing up and like seeing what a body, an adult body looks like, so that they're not scared when that happens and to normalize nudity so that it doesn't become pornographic, basically, which is like one camp in this whole argument with parents. But then also, for me, I'm just like, absolutely, if there's a person who doesn't have control over whether or not someone's going to see them naked, to me, that's a hard and fast line. I need to protect my kids from seeing someone who could feel shame as a result of being seen naked, right? Uh-huh. Or being seen uncovered, right? So that's, you know, that's the line that I have, right? And, and those, t- people oh. could see that as there's no line, there's no distinction, but there is. To me, the level of protection is I'm voluntarily showing you this to to make it so that bodies are no longer or not continually sexualized and I'm shameful of my body and therefore like I'm 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 embarrassed and the kids can feel that. Right. right? Well, it's interesting cuz my father was a he's now a retired professor of art 
And so we grew up seeing nudity all the time. Not necessarily our, you know, the, the we didn't see the parent of the opposite gender nude at, after we turned five. That was like basically the thing in our house. But essentially, as far as other nude bodies, we saw them all the time because every time we'd go to the, my dad's work, there was nude art all over the wall. He had figure drawing classes going on all the time. And we would just walk in the class and ask, you know, can I get some money for the Coke machine? And there's a nude model posing in the middle of a room and sometimes we have a beautiful garden and so sometimes he'd bring the class to our house because the nude model would sit in our garden and mm -hmm. in order to do the figure drawing so I grew up seeing nudity constantly of both genders so like male and female nudity constantly all the time it was just I was just taught that that was just normal part of the human body you know and I have very little sexual shame and very little body shame, despite my weird-ass 20s food disorder yeah. stuff. But I don't believe that was body image stuff as much as it was um, a control thing. But I, I'm really all for nudity in an, you know, obviously not sexualized nudity. But I, I think it's, I think it's very good for kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that other cultures do sexualize nudity in the sense that they all live in a family bed. Literally other cultures, the kids are continually exposed to not just nudity, but also. So again, we're actually being prudish compared right. to our, other cultures in the world, right? And you know, and I know people who are extremely careful, like they, the, the child doesn't show themselves naked to the opposite parents. Like I know people who the husband, it's like an unspoken rule that the husband, the father does not change the daughter's diapers. Like it, it's, it's that much of like, we're going to be very separate. And in a way, I think that actually does sexualize the child. And, and I'd like to know for the people who grow up in the houses where you have to hide the body and the body shouldn't be seen naked. I'd like to know what percentage of those people enjoy sex and, and, and orgasm. I just think that, that excessive modesty can lead to a lot of body shame and, and a lot of closure of being able to multi-orgasm or orgasm. That's just my own belief. So I'm all for nudity because I think it teaches you to just see sex and your body as just natural and normal. Obviously, you teach right. people boundaries and like right touch and wrong touch, obviously. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. So when it comes to protection – you can have an experience in which you have a, a parent who is too vulnerable, right? They're too, they're too emotional. They're kind of, or not too emotional. I'm not going to say that. They're, they're basically not protecting you from their emotional experience and they're expecting you to go along with it, right? That's one example of a lack of protection. And as you can see, this is a massive category. This literally can go, this encompasses so much because you're protecting from your own emotions, your own, you know, like basically not making them grow up earlier than they need to, which also goes into guidance, but like not making them go up, uh, grow up earlier or not making them have to, to, you know, take on your emotional regulation experiences as they get older and being like, oh, I had such a hard day. I'm going to tell you all about it. You know, like basically kind of, uh, and again, this goes into guidance more, but treating them like a friend or a partner who is not a child and who is capable of doing it. That's one level of a lack of protection that you may have experienced as a kid, which is which is one of the things that will lead to this mother wound, right? It could be that you have a complete absence of protection, which then, of course, leads to significant fearful experiences. So this can lead to a lot of sleep issues in particular. So if you find that you have nightmares when you're asleep, if you don't sleep for long periods of time, there could be a million different reasons why, 
But if you know that you had a lack of complete lack of protection, then there could be a very good chance that this is linked to that, right? That you did not feel safe in your house and you were not able to you were not able to sleep restfully because you had to stay constantly vigilant. And again, that kind of that hypervigilance is again kind of maybe third degree mother hunger that we were talking about. And then and then the kind of the last thing that you could experience too is that you have a parent who is too aggressive, right? Which is again that parent is abusive or they are too aggressive with their even they're they're too aggressive with their protection of you right like those are all things that lead to a sincere lack of trust it can lead to control issues going up and one of the things this is such a huge category that I'm just going to kind of name off some of the things without giving it its proper due time if you have difficulty seeing yourself clearly it could be because your emotions were so interplayed with your parental figure, with your mother figure, that you you don't know where they end and you begin, right? So that can be one of the things that you experience. You can have a version. This is so fascinating. On the podcast, Unfuck Your Brain. She oh, talks the one that about, I sent you? Yeah, yeah, about parenting, right? She talks about she has an aversion to bodily movement. Do you usually movement. listen to so, – I've never listened to it before. Okay. I've never listened to it before, okay. and I listen to it because I've been I've been yeah. doing all this research on the uh, for this one episode. And she talks about how she's discovering that she has an aversion to certain bodily movements. And I was like, that's why she she doesn't go to the gym. Yeah, that's I was I have the same thing. I totally have the same thing. And I'm like, and so I was just like, that's why when she said it, I was like, holy fuck, I'm just like my brain just went into overdrive. And I was like, and then I felt it in my body. And I was like, that's there's there is like a pain that I associate, like most people associate exercise with like feeling good. And I and I like literally had this torture. It's torture to me. I cannot imagine having to move my body in that particular way. And I like re- I did a regression, like a really quick regression just to be like, what's going on here? I like yeah. went into channeling and it was like it was all about there's some lack of protection that happened to me when I was a kid. And I couldn't draw a proper boundary, and now I have an aversion to certain bodily to bodily movement to exercise, right? Interesting. Be- because of this, so I'm I'm gonna get. On I'll top link of that, that episode in the show notes because that's a great one about parenting. It is. It really is. And so, and then also, again, this can lead to love addiction, different eating patterns, exercising too much, right? So I have the I give you the example of not exercising enough, and this can lead you as to how you're exercising too much, right? Because you feel safe when you're in that state, when you're, you know, constantly moving or things like this. Again, this goes into kind of body image and things like that, which are a lot more in guidance. These are all aspects of not having proper protection when you're a kid. So two things that you can do is, you know, one is going to regression and recalling a time when you actually felt safe as a little person, right? Like how did you feel safe? When did you feel safe and and expanding that infinitely in every direction. Anna, you did this. Do you want to kind of give some some Oh yeah. So in my RTT with Gerard Hill, RTT as a rapid transformational therapy coming from the hypnotist Marissa Peer, I was to go back to my childhood and find a, a, a memory where I felt the safest and the happiest. And it was actually me sitting on the floor of my bedroom at age three or four, just playing blocks with my dad. Like my dad was sitting, we were doing parallel play. He was building a tower with those cube blocks and I was build, building some stack of God knows what. In my mind, it was awesome. But you know, it's probably just like four <laughs> blocks on top of each other. And it was just that feeling of like, I'm safe and I'm happy and I'm content and I need nothing. Like, and he just had me really magnify that feeling and find it in my own heart and in my own body. And then he kind of prompted me to know that anytime I ever want to feel that sense of safety and love and peace, it's always in me. Like I always carry that with me and I can always feel it by just tapping into that memory. 
So yeah. 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 Alternative nostril breathing, which we talk about in the Tantra episode, um, which is going to be upcoming later in this season. That is basically where you breathe in through one nostril and then you breathe out through the other and then you breathe in through that one that you just let it out. And then otherwise you can look it up on the internet for a much better explanation, but that's a really good way to make yourself feel safe. You know, another indication that you may have protection issues is oftentimes Kelly McDaniel said that she found that people have dreams about being in a house by themselves that's flooding burning or infested by rats she said it was very very common that that was the dream that people had that they were basically trapped inside a house by themselves and that they had had that she also talks about cry it out which you know you've talked about a number of different times is that you know she has a very strong opinion about being anti-cry it out for the very same reason of like a child not feeling protected to actually like experience that, that they are alone when they are crying and how damaging that can be or how mother wounding mother wounding forming that can be right all right so going on to guidance moving quickly along here guidance is something that comes along it it kind of obviously is continual but it, it obviously requires a level of cognitive ability to be able to 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 understand words but you are guiding your kid the whole time and you are as a kid you are being guided the whole time because the best way that we learn is by role modeling right So you are continually watching how your parents are regulating themselves. You're continually watching from the most early ages. You're continually learning how they deal with their stuff all the time. The active part of guidance obviously comes later, but there's a very clear level of guidance that happens the whole time as you model and learn. So for me, I recognize that in the early years of my mothering and, you know, I started my journey of understanding all of my mother wound stuff from when I started to become a mother. Like that was kind of when I got thrust into it kind of against (laughs) without even realizing it was going to happen. And I feel like sometimes I want to beat myself up for how unaware I was and how bad I was at emotionally regulating. And then I have my, and the, you know, I, I say that for a second and then I say, okay, well, actually what I'm doing right now is I'm modeling for my children a seven-year-long journey for healing and becoming emotionally mature. I'm literally doing it in front of my kids. And it may not always be the prettiest thing and it may not always be the best thing, but it's how I can recognize that I am improving now and thus able to do that. So that's obviously specifically for parents. But guidance can affect a lot of different things. It has a lot to do with how your idea of beauty, social and cultural identity, creating togetherness, like how you create community, your femininity or not femininity, whatever it is that you're expressing, you know, basically a lot of sexual innocence has to do with this as well. She describes, Kelly McDaniel in her book describes a very long kind of, she recalls this the story in which, and I will get the name of the book and put it in the show notes, but it's about a relationship in which a mother basically puts her daughter into a love triangle. And this is again, third degree mother hunger. This is more of an extreme version, but basically puts her daughter into a love triangle by involving her daughter like she's a best friend instead of a daughter right and by doing that the daughter is basically forced to take care like the the mother goes off and has an affair and the daughter is forced to basically take care of her stepfather and forms a more mutual bond with the stepfather and all that kind of stuff so you know 
the guidance is I'm not going to be your mother and actually express to you how this is appropriate. Like what is the appropriate way to actually have this relationship? But instead I'm just going to throw it all out there and you're going to become my best friend, quote unquote, aren't we such great friends? And you're going to shoulder the burden of adult feelings and, you know, what friendship should be like, right? So like what Anna and I have, like imagine what Anna and I have and imagine me doing that with my daughter and how inappropriate that would be. Like my daughter is not in charge of helping me do my shadow work, right? And my job is to help guide her do it. So there's, I mean, this is, I could, I could talk for a very long time about it, but I'm just going to, again, go through this. All the different things that can indicate that you had a lack of guidance, you know, sense of self-love, oversense of beauty, you know, feeling so this is this is really really fascinating right is that you may if you had a lack of guidance from a mother figure especially if that mother figure treated you as a partner or a best friend instead of actually having their partner be their partner or having another person another female a peer of their same age what can happen is that when you want to have a partner you can feel completely used and exhausted and not actually want to be in a partner relationship because you feel like you already have a partner relationship, right? And so what you're experiencing is that you're you're recognizing that you may choose uninspiring partners even because your primary relationship, partner relationship is with your mother, right? And if your primary relationship was with your mother, why would you pick a really cool, interesting other partner, because that's going to be your secondary relationship, right? So you may have a complete aversion to wanting any kind of partner relationship at all because you already feel like you have it. Or you can basically pick a number of self-sabotaging things because your primary relationship is with is with your parent instead of with your partner. have a completely dead marriage because you're getting your emotional needs met by your parents. Exactly. Or vice versa. Or you're required to meet the emotional needs of your parents and so you can't do it in your partnership, right? Like right, this you're is, burned this out. It's crazy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when you feel like your job is to make your parent happy, to give their life meaning, when you feel guilty for wanting your own space, you're not gonna, that, those are all indications that you lack the guidance that you needed at the appropriate time. Like you needed guidance and you needed a mother figure who was going to be the 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 guiding light and not the part, not the best friend, not the partner, not somebody who was going to use their children to meet their emotional needs. Right. I lived in India for a couple years and I studied a lot Osho and Osho was saying that it's incredibly difficult for eight people who've come from Asia to do a lot of primal wound work and a lot of self-reflective work because the, the dynamics of the Asian parent culture and their children is such that they are taught early on that they are loved so much. And there's a lot of an enmeshment and pressure to be part of this whole. In the West, we have very individualized thinking, which has its pros and cons. And in the East, you have a lot more community thinking, which has its pros and cons. And one of the cons of that, he said, is it's very hard for the child to de-identify themselves from the parent or ever see that their parent was imperfect so for example he talks about how in primal wounds and going back it's extremely difficult for someone who comes from an asian background to ever see their parent as fault or ever messing up and they'll even say 
I can't do a regression because my my childhood was perfect. Like my parents gave me everything I needed. Like there's nothing there. I've got mm-hmm. nothing. I've got no juice to feed. And what they don't recognize is the enmeshment aspect of the over control, of the over love and the overbearingness of the Asian parent in, in quotes, you know, this is culturally speaking. This is not specific, but in general, there's a lot of pressure to get married. There's a lot of, you know, there's arranged marriages even. Like I'm going to pick your partner if you don't do it. You know, or I'm going to pick your partner and you're going to like who I pick for you because I'm your parent and I know better. Or the child may not even want to ever get married, but they have to because the parent is constantly guilt tripping them to get married. So, you know, that's an interesting aspect. We have listeners all over the world. And if you are coming from an Asian background, you might recognize the ways that, yeah, you might have had the perfect childhood. But in what ways are your parents still being your attachment bond now? Yeah. And and the thing is, is that, again, we're saying Asian cultures, but at the same time, it's just a cultural aspect. And it may be that you are obviously coming from an Asian cultures and you have absolutely nothing to do with that. So, right. You know, just because if you grow up with Asian like parents, that. you're not like it, it. I mean, it's not a guarantee or that you're like that, but there are certain cultural aspects, you know, and I come from a Jewish background and there's a little bit of that, too, in Judaism of like parental pressure to marry within your own this or that or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that every single culture has a level of it, and the level is 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 kind of it's you may see it and more in others or not. Another term for enmeshment, which Kelly McDaniel mentions, is covert incest, which is a very harsh and kind of triggering terminology for it. So we're just going to say enmeshment. But the idea is that you know you could be the chosen favorite. And, you know, it feels like you were almost that partner. And I know I've definitely worked with people who've had this experience um, before, and it can take a lot to kind of to kind of heal this experience. Right. And and it's emotional incest in a way. It's like not physical touch or anything, but it's like the mother who expects her son to take care of her emotional needs and leave his wife in the sidelines kind of person. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have this is this can be generations of inherited maternal conditioning that have told people that the guidance that they, that have told people that the guidance that they had, that they required was you are feminine. These are feminine roles. These are the things that you do in your house. And it gets passed on and passed on and passed on as like, this is the appropriate role. This is the appropriate thing that you're supposed to do. In some ways, I'm always grateful for my own family because it was so fucked up in some ways that like I never had an ideal of what a woman was supposed to do. I think it was only when I got into my late 20s that I was like, oh, shit, now I see how women are discriminated against. But for me, I just felt like the sky was the limit because I didn't have a a woman telling me, you know, I I had a female role model in my life who obviously didn't have any of those boundaries so that probably helped but you know that that like we both traveled the world and it was funny because when I met other women who were traveling the world solo we joked we called it the motherless daughter club because it was like every time I would meet another woman traveling alone or living abroad alone nine times out of ten we didn't have a mother and I think it's because we didn't have the roots and we didn't have the limitations yeah Yeah. So other indications of loss of guidance, you could find that you are competing with the partner, with your part, like basically with your mother's partner for attention or anything along those lines. Those are also indications that you're not having um, the right guidance. You could do your household duties with resentment because the guidance that was told was like, this is my maternal conditioning that I have to do all the housework. And you could have a lot of resentment for having to do that. You know, you could have a preference for wanting sons or see that 
your mother was actually preferring to have sons for whatever reason as well. Those are, you know, these, these I'm, I'm kind of going to like, this is what you could experience and this is what you may have experienced. You could want to escape reality with addictions or mothers are teaching their daughters that women can't be trusted. And this is a huge, huge thing that's part of this greater mother wound, right? Is that when a mother doesn't have, doesn't like properly create the boundaries between herself and her daughter or herself and her child, she and then and then becomes you know emotionally dependent on it or has this enmeshment or any of these things happening what you're teaching them is that 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 women can't be trusted right like that that it's not just your mother can't be trusted it it goes the whole spectrum and then all of a sudden you expand outwards and you're like okay well women can't be trusted because I can't trust my own mother my mother required way too much of me she preferred me or she didn't prefer me or she did whatever she did all of these different things and she kind of pigeonholed me and now I don't trust women to not do the same thing. And the experience with your mother is probably going to be the experience that you have with almost all. It's going to be hard for you to break out, especially in the formative relationships that you have after, like as you grow up, but also with all women. You know, there's jokes about how men see all women as their mother. That's real, right? So like mm-hmm. if you have a lack of trust in women because it's not provided, you haven't been provided proper gu- guidance or you're not providing proper guidance or proper boundaries – which is a lot of what guidance is, then this can happen. So that was a lot of information, guys, about protection, nurture, and guidance. But I hope that you've been given some more indications of kind of what this is. So we're going to next get into the idea of attachment objects. And the reason, and Anna really covered this well in the prelude of today's episode, but I kind of wanted to to kind of do my own thing because in a lot of ways, I have to like, I'm using a public forum in some ways to, to actually express my resentment in myself for not having recognized what I call a barrent attachment object, which was my sister. It's really interesting because, you know, when we experience mother wound work, it comes out in all sorts of different ways, right? It can it can come out as listening to this episode or listening to this series of episodes and doing the work or just recognizing that you kind of have this low-level hatred of your mother or that you have a very tumultuous relationship with your mother. Like there's so many different things that can give you access. And for me, obviously I've described to you guys my journey of COVID, of getting COVID and, and kind of being in the UK, but, but you know, the parts that I didn't express were the parts in which I have a very strained relationship with my sister now because of those events because I wasn't seeing what I was doing and what I was doing was basically you know okay so some background growing up I had obviously my attachment object was in my mother I was her favorite everybody told me that I've told you guys this in the past and everyone tells me that my sister was basically the person who took care of me, right? So she was the one who was providing the food. She was the one who was doing all this kind of stuff. And for me, I didn't remember any of that. So I kind of resented the fact that I was being held to account for something that was happening beyond the, the bounds of my own memory. But it was my resistance to saying you were my mother because she wasn't my mother in almost any other way. Like once my mother died, we were kind of off in our own corners and there was no guidance and there was no other things like that. But there also shouldn't have been any of that. So it was really interesting because for me, I needed to change the language from you are treating your sister like a mother to your sister is your attachment object. For me, that helped me get over 
the resentment that I had for not having any guidance, protection, or nurturance after a certain point, even when my mother was alive. It really helped me to understand what was going on. And so what this whole experience, you know, kind of the conclusion of, it's not probably the conclusion, but what happened is that, you know, I went to England to help. I asked for the mother wound to like, to give me access to her. And what was presented was what I hadn't seen for 32 years of my life, which was this understanding that, that when I got sick, I, even though my sister was in no position to help me, and should never have, you know, I expected her to help. I expected her to support me. And it took a month and a half, six weeks of massive work of being angry and being resentful for me to recognize this, this thing that had existed the entire time. But the thing is, is that, you know, I can say this now is like, I am so, so sorry that it took me so long to recognize that I have, I call it an aberrant attachment object and the only reason there's an aberrant I don't I don't know how you pronounce it but the reason I say that is like I have a kitten who has a head tilt and and the the vet was like she could have a bear aberrant parasites or there's like a whole big terminology which means that the parasites are in places that they're not supposed to be which I find funny like as a concept but that's kind of why I was like oh so I have an aberrant attachment object I have an attachment object that is in my sister in which and and this is how I could tell Okay, guys, this is how I, I finally figured it out that this is what was happening. After I got home and, and I kind of had this resentment and my sister and I really had a very strained like relationship and kind of had an argument, I was obsessed with trying to figure out what I did wrong, what she did wrong, how can I fix it? I literally could not get it off my fucking brain. Like it was just like it was like obsessively going after this thing. And I was like, but I don't care. Like before this. I had absolutely no care about what was going on. I didn't know what she was doing and I didn't really care, right? Like I was just like, she's off in her own life. She's off in England. She's going to do her thing and I'm going to be over here and we're just going to have our separate lives and it's totally okay. But what I didn't recognize was that it was only when things became strained that I started to recognize that I was acting like the baby Reese's monkey. And I'm not saying that she was a monster mother, but I was basically wanting to repair whatever it was and I cared so much about how she thought about me and I cared so much about her validation and her opinions just went straight into my heart even if they felt really really painful and really harmful like I just there was no gateway it was like it was like I wanted it but I didn't want it and that's when I recognized that not only was she my aberrant attachment object but I also have avoidant attachment like I couldn't see it because I was being so avoidant of it this whole time that like, and, and even in the first episode of the series, I literally talk about how I think I have secure attachment. I do not have fucking secure attachment. I have avoidant insecure attachment, right? And I'm basically doing the work now to heal that by doing regressions, by, by going and seeing my teachers and things like that. I'm doing stuff to recognize that I have that now, but it was so covert, man. Like y'all, it was just so covert. And it's really hard to see your own shit, but like Anna... Oh my God. Anna was so funny because she like, she was the first one that let me know because we were at the lake recording all the original episodes and we were about to record the mother wound. And she was like, we came out of some meditation and you were like, you still treat your sister like your mother. Like you still expect her to be your mother. And I was like, no, I don't. I was like, you know, because I couldn't see it. Right. So it took Anna triggering me to say that. And then we did an extra. When you guys were arguing, I was like, well, you think she's your mom. She's just your sister. 
And you were like, no, but I didn't have the vocabulary then to be like, she's your aberrant attachment object. I was, I was more just like, treat her like a sister, expect, you know, or whatever. Right. But I don't even know how to treat anybody like a sister, which is one of the kind of the things is like, you know, if you don't have that model for like, okay, we've never had like a normal relationship, but then it was so fascinating because it came to a head a couple of days ago when I was just like, I cannot get this argument out of my mind. And so I asked Anna to do the family constellation. I asked her to be a proxy for my sister. And so she channeled my sister and she told, and it was the most helpful thing ever because it was like, I could totally offload without worrying that I was permanently damaging my relationship with my sister by saying the things and by her saying the things back to me. And I still got in that fight and flight mode that I get into when I get into arguments with her, but it, 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 it helped. Yeah. To explain what we did there was, you know, you say like, oh, I'm breaking up with this guy or I have a fight with this parent or this sibling or whatever. And you write them a letter and burn it or write them a letter, but don't send it, that kind of thing. Well, this is a little bit next level. So basically me being unbiased, meaning my ultimate goal is for peace and harmony between the two people. Like I'm not taking sides and I'm not thinking Christina's right and the sister's wrong and vice versa. Like my objective is is healing. And I, so it's like you got to find someone who is unbiased and has the ultimate objective of peace and harmony, right? Because yeah. you don't want to be trashing the other person or, or anything like that. So basically I just pretended to be her sister and I imagined, okay, if I was her sister, what would I say? And then Christina just had a conversation with me and I responded the way I thought her sister would respond. And that's what I mean by saying I channeled the sister Right? Yeah. So you could do that with somebody. So basically, instead of writing a letter, she had a dialogue, but she had a dialogue in a safe way that things that she needed to say weren't actually said to someone that could hurt them and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was extremely helpful because I had written a letter that I was going to send to her, but I knew that I couldn't send it because it was just like way too mid-process. And so then by the time that I was done, I literally could write a letter and I had dreams that told me I needed to write the letter that was like, I am so sorry that I brought my shit to your door when you needed help. I totally, I brought my shit to her door and I'm sorry. If you're listening to this sister, I'm so sorry. I don't know if I can make up for a lifetime of, of not moving on from you as my attachment object, but I'm going to start and I'm going to still love myself and love you, but now start to love you as a sister. So yeah, that's, that's the attachment object thing and, and do you want to keep? Uh, do you want to? Do you want to further this into special love and attachment? Yeah. Just, yeah. So I want to talk about special love, and I want to talk about attachment objects. So if you remember back in episode three of season three, Sethi and Raja talks about the three different levels of a relationship. He says in stage one, there's a lot of toxicity and drama triangle stuff, and and I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that. And in that stage, we can say that the attachment object is unresolved with the parent. There's a lot of trauma going on. You haven't done any reparenting work. And you're still kind of stuck in that avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, insecure attachment stuff, okay, stage one. In stage two, there is, in the relationship that you'll have with your partner, you're going to see more equality, more partnership stuff, more, more I do this and you do that, and we're blending of gender roles and a lot more peace than stage one, but also lack of passion and a lack of play. You know, it becomes a yeah. very a very brother-sister or roommate relationship. Yeah, Bus- business-like. Neutrality. Trans- yeah, neutral and transactional. And yeah. in that stage, we could say that you have now moved and your attachment object is no longer the parent, but it is your partner. Okay, so now in stage three, Sethian talks about how in a stage three relationship, it is more conscious It is more like my partner is the cherry on my cake. They are not the cake. And I am going to play with 
the divine feminine and the divine masculine to pull out different aspects of them and to help them. And there's a lot of passion and play and consciousness. And we could say in that stage now, the attachment bond has moved. This is my own theory. The attachment bond now has been displaced a step further, which modern day psychology texts don't necessarily say, which is God. So I'm going to say God. And if you're an atheist listening to it and the word God triggers you, just replace it with your higher self or your true self or your essence, because it's all eventually the same thing. But yeah, so going into the next level, which is love of God. And then that got me thinking about something called special relationships. So you want to give a a quick little synopsis of A Course in Miracles, Chris? Yep. So A Course in Miracles was a channeled text that was channeled back in the 70s in... in New York and in people associated with Columbia University, though, not actually from Columbia University. And it purports to be the channeled words of Jesus Christ. And it is a holographic text in the sense that you can pick it up and read any sentence and the sentence itself is like incredibly powerful and can tell you things. But it is also a very, very difficult text to get into, which is why we recommend The Disappearance of the Universe um, by Gary Renard if you are interested in The Course in Miracles because it's more linear and less holographic. But it has 365 lessons in the back of it, which are really great workbook lessons. And it has the truth, which is that, well, I'm not going to say it has the truth. Basically, it says that the world is in the matrix it's yeah it's in it's a projection the world is a projection of our own mental of our own subconscious of our own consciousness and even consciousness itself is a is a degree separated from the oneness of all encompassing love so think of it like the matrix we're all we're we're all living in the matrix which is a projection of our own guilt he calls it yeah yeah, it's a projection of our own of our own separation of our own making and that actually we're all asleep not in a battery factory but in the bosom of the, the all creator's dream. <laughs> create yeah, we're just we're just in we're actually there and our whole job is to heal our minds of all the things that all the separation that we've created in order to be able to return and recognize and wake up and realize where we really are. Right. And we talk a lot about it in season one, episode fourteen. We talk about true forgiveness. So essentially in this book, A Course in Miracles, they talk a lot about it in chapter fifteen, this concept called special love. So essentially special love is the idea that on this planet, in this reality, we are going to have people that we have special love for. And we could use this as to say, these are the people that we have created attachment bonds or attachment objects. We have the people that we have a special love for. Uh, Buddha would call it attachment. Dukkha, dukkha, suffering, suffering, attachment. Mm-hmm. Course in Miracles calls it special love. Modern day psychologists would call it the, the object of your attachment bond. But essentially, there are people in this world that you're going to have a special affinity to, to or for. And you know that because when they stop giving you what you desire, which is maybe love and attention, or even they just die, which is beyond their control, it hurts. So there's always, you know, it's going to hurt more. Like, I'm going to definitely care more about Christina's opinion of me than that stranger walking down the street because I have special love for Christina. Mm -hmm. And similarly, you know, if my husband was to start sleeping with another woman, that would hurt me because I have special love for my husband. But whereas, you know, five doors down, someone's some guy sleeping with another woman, it doesn't hurt me. What's the difference? The difference is we have a bond, right? We have a special, a special love. So in A Course in Miracles, it talks about perfect love, and special love or special relationship and the holy relationship. And the idea is 
that when we graduate, we kind of graduate in spirituality, we start to emphasize the holy relationship in our life and not the special relationship. And this is a quote. The holy instant is the Holy Spirit's most useful learning device for teaching you love's meaning. In the holy instant, our judgments based on what we think is true are replaced by the Holy Spirit's kind and gentle vision. The ego dissolves in its healing light. Quote, under his teaching, every relationship becomes a lesson in love, end quote. So basically in this world, if we wanted to create an ego, if you're a creator and you're like, I'm creating a video game and a, 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 of a reality and that the people have an ego and like, how can we manifest the ego? Special love is the most perfect illusion to keep you stuck in ego. Special love is the most beautiful illusion you could create to sustain the ego because then the ego is constantly, I got to be like this to get that person to love me, et cetera, et cetera. There's a wonderful podcaster named David Hoffmeister who takes movies and he breaks it down in terms of A Course in Miracles lesson and he talks about The Great Gatsby. So The Great Gatsby is a great allegory of special love because in that movie this man has special love for Daisy he's obsessed with Daisy no one else can suffice like it has to be her and only her again yeah. Hollywood helps feed this whole bullshit thing about special love it has to be Daisy and he goes to great lengths to have Daisy he gets the mansion with the green light across the bay he buys all these things he's feeding his ego he's creating more lies and more illusions to get Daisy so basically we're all doing that we, we have our special love attachment we try to earn their love we try to keep their love we have drama triangle stuff we're doing everything in our power to keep that addiction which is essentially feeding the ego so how do we move beyond this and the idea is we move beyond this by going into the holy love and becoming love and recognizing that there is no separation between ourself and them so here's another quote from the course in miracles in the holy instant no one is special for your personal needs intrude on no one to make your brother seem different Without the values from the past, you would see them all the same and like yourself, nor would you see any separation between yourself and them. So basically, you graduate from special love and into holy love when you start to recognize that everyone and everything is an expression of the divine and therefore love. And you are being godlike when you love them all. And I have some great quotes from other masters. It's not just A Course in Miracles saying this. Ram Dass says, as I said earlier, I'm not interested in being a lover. I'm interested in only being love. He also says, the greatest thing you can do for another being is to provide the unconditional love that comes from making contact with that place in them that is beyond conditions, which is just pure consciousness, pure essence. That is, once we acknowledge each other as existing, just being here, just being, then each of us is free to change optimally. If I can just love you because here we are, then you are free to grow as you need to grow. Oh, Beautiful. Osho says, a single moment of love is equal to the whole eternity of love. Meaning when you're tapping into holy love, which is true love, the real true love, you tap into all of eternity. And then Ma says, love is not sentimental attachment to a human being. Love is a mode of conduct that comes from the heart. And then another great master, Sarati Devi says, and I love this quote and it's so perfect. Because she was an enlightened being and she tapped into the mother, the true mother. She says, I am the mother of the wicked as I am the mother of the virtuous. Never fear wherever you are in distress. Say to yourself, I have a mother. 
th th that is like so important. What is she saying there? It doesn't matter if you're wicked. It doesn't matter if you're virtuous. You are always loved by the mother. And that is how we should, you know, strive to be, to love the way the mother loves, the way that the mother loves us. We always have a mother. Okay, two more. Sri Yukteswar Giri says, Ordinary love is selfish, darkly rooted in desires and satisfaction. Divine love is without condition, without boundary, without change. The flux of the human heart is gone forever at the transfixing touch of pure love. Mm. And one more. Paramahansa Yogananda says, If you don't invite God to be your summer guest, he won't come in the winter of your life. Which is to say, if you're picking and choosing when and where you're going to express love, it's not going to be there in your darkest hours. You're yeah. going to forget it. So you need to basically live in love and be love and have your whole life essence be of love and not pick and choose who you're loving. You know, it's it starts to get very existential. Can you still be married if you have holy love for all. I mean, I still think you can, but the point being, if you're living in that holy love and that holy relationship and recognizing everyone and everything as an aspect of God, of the divine in you, and you're going to move in love, then you're always in love, whether it be summer, whether it be winter, because regardless of who your special love attachment is, one day they are going to either leave you or die or or not give you that which you need and that is the winter i believe that he's talking about but when when you invite god into the holy relationship into all things it's always there yeah yeah so as we wrap up this mother wound series Anna, can you tell us some we've we've given you guys a lot of different techniques and after today's episode you may be like oh god if, if you didn't know that you had the mother wound before then you probably think you may have it now because we mentioned a lot of different quote unquote symptoms of what it feels like to have this mother wound, right? And oftentimes, like we said, I believe that the primal wounds actually are fractals or like prism colors that come off of this mother wound um, is kind of what the way that I've been seeing it. Um, and you, you obviously do what works for you guys, but um, I think what is important here is to recognize that, you know, it's likely that you have this. And if you don't, that's great. But if you okay, do... Okay, if you have special love, if you have attachments, <laughs> if you're looking for the one, if you're looking for the right special attachment object, you have, you have, if you're not enlightened, you have a mother wound. Yeah. And so, and if that's the case, which it is, because unless you're enlightened, then please come and we'll, we'll interview you. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Like, um, why are you listening to our podcast if you're enlightened? <laughs> um, or we all just have to recognize that we're already enlightened. So technically, every single one of our listeners is enlightened. But um, what are the techniques that, what is a technique that you can use, Anna, to find out what techniques are going to be best for you as you, as you foray into this and as, as we all aspire to having this holy love in our life instead of seeing that our mother has harmed us or having maladaptive behaviors like not wanting people to touch us because we didn't get the nurturance that we wanted as a kid. In our bonus episode number 10, we talk about how to break soul contracts and we go into great detail about how to get yes and no answers from your higher consciousness. So this is what I do and I'll tell you what I do is I make a list in my head of the techniques that I know work for me. It's gonna look different for everybody, but for me, you know, Vipassana is one, radical forgiveness, AKA Ho'oponopono was another, past life regression might be one, an RTT might be one, visiting Robbie or Shaman might be one, having a chat with a friend, family constellation, 
putting myself in alpha. Like I got a list of maybe 10 or 15 techniques that are tried and true and I know work for me. So your, your list might be two. Maybe your list is 30. We all have different numbers of tools in our bag and hopefully this podcast is giving you access to more tools. We have different episodes about different tools, but basically, you, you know, you make a list of the tools that you know that work for you, that you're confident in, and then you can just ask yourself, and it doesn't even have to be mother wound. It can be anything. You're like, I want to work on this issue. I would like to speak to my higher consciousness. I get a yes or no answer. This is a yes. This is a no. Am I speaking to my higher consciousness? Yes. Okay. If I want to work on my current issue of the mother wound, of these techniques, which is the one that will most thoroughly, harmoniously, and quickly get me healing or the insight that I'm seeking or needing? Okay. And then you ask, da, da, da. Is it ho'oponopono? Is it a past life regression? Is it the feed your demon exercise, is it prayer, okay? Let's say you just have four. And you get your yes or no answer. Maybe you get two yeses, which means you need to do two techniques. So I know that when I had that dream about my mother wearing the wig and seeing my sister as a child having to pretend to be an adult, I knew that I had mother wound healing to do from that dream, that that dream was trying to tell me something. So doing this yes and no question and answer, I got the answer that I needed to do Ho'oponopono, which is radical forgiveness, to all the fake mothers in my life. I had to radically forgive my sister and my mother and my stepmother and aunts and grandmothers and even a friend that we have a lot of a lot of special love and special drama because I realized that I was seeing her as my mother figure. And so I went through one by one. I did Ho'oponopono and radically forgave all of those mother figures in my life for giving me the illusion of mother because ultimately my mother is the mother, which is God, which is the holy relationship I'm seeking. So I, I did forgiveness on all my special relationships so I can shift my focus to the holy relationship. Yeah. Now it might be different for you. Maybe you have to do a regression to your childhood, past life regression, prayer. I don't know what it is, but this is a wonderful technique to, to be quick and easy. Like if you're cleaning a cast iron pot and you're using the wrong sponge, you could spend hours and hours and days soaking it. And if you have the right tool and the right soap and the right sponge, it takes five minutes. So, you know, there's proper tools for proper things. And so doing the Q&A of yes, no, back and forth with your higher consciousness, you can usually find the quickest route and the most efficient route to heal whatever it is you're working on. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And for me, I can tell you that I don't, I'm not as organized as Anna is. So I usually, you know, I get access to something. I let it stew. I think that some of the stuff needs to bake because I sometimes like to rush access, right? Oh like yeah, I, I like, definitely um, let it bake. Yeah. I yeah. You gotta it you de- definitely let it bake. And then when you feel called, that's when you do it. It is good to check in with your higher self if you if you can do this muscle testing to, or just like because sometimes we avoid healing something because we want to feel the badness for continuing longer. We feel like we need to punish ourselves and there's kind of un you know things. So don't let it stew forever and wait for inspiration to do this. Like let it stew for a little bit and then do this check. And it could just be like for me, I don't I don't actually muscle test all the time. I usually just am like okay, I feel like I need to do a feed your demon. It like it it comes into my mind as the thing that I need to do. And, you know, whichever technique works for you is a good technique. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, so I want to end on one more quote about holy love from A Course in Miracles. Every loving thought is true. Everything else is an appeal for healing and help, regardless of the form it takes. Oh, brilliant. 
We hope that you've enjoyed this special Mother Wounds series. We enjoy receiving your emails of any feedback that you have for us. This.spiritual.fix at gmail.com. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Hi, y'all. Listening to the last season of This Spiritual Fix may have stirred up for you some awareness of how the mother wound ties into so many of our subconscious needs and desires in our daily lives. Well, we've put together a comprehensive five-week course on this mother wound, complete with meditations, journal prompts, and never-before-seen videos and lectures. This course is designed for you to heal your personal and cosmic attachment wounds, reparent yourself, and surrender to the Great Mother. This course is an intense experience for spiritual seekers, and maybe you're not ready for something that intense yet. So we've put together our version of what we call the Shadow Work Essentials course, the Mother Wound Mini, to give you access and awareness to this wound with tools to process your energy and to remember the Cosmic Mother's love for you. I cannot emphasize enough how much this work has changed my relationship with my partner, my kids, my family, and the world. It can be life-changing for you too. Go to our shop, www.thisspiritualfix.com forward slash shop for more details. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.